Hey everybody, welcome back to the Dog Backwards Podcast. We're going to continue our look into Roman Catholicism. Is it good? Is it godly? Do the arguments they make from Scripture, do they hold up? Should I convert and become a, a Roman Catholic or a part of the Catholic Church? As they would say, come home to the Catholic Church. Now, I find this kind of study does tremendous value, offers tremendous value to my own Christian walk. Like I learn so much whenever I do something like this about my own faith. I always, my view of church history is expanded. So I highly encourage you, if you're Catholic or if you're Protestant or whatever it is, to examine the arguments from the other side in as much as a fair and balanced way as you can, though we're all going to come to it with our kind of preconceived notions. And just allow scripture to speak. Now, one of the benefits of doing this is it takes the edge off a little bit in conversations that you might have in person. I know I have a little bit of an edge to me when it comes to talking about other faiths. I don't mean for it to come off as uh, offensive or rude, but I love truth. And sometimes in that pursuit of truth, if you feel like there's a person in your way, you can just hack right through them because truth is your goal. And I never want to do that in such a way that wounds people that I love. And man, I took a little bit longer to make this video because one of the people that I was really just engaged with in all of their content, whether it be scholarly articles, uh, books, or they have a web, uh, YouTube page called Truth Unites is a guy by, by the name of Gavin Ortland. And when it comes to conversations with Catholics or people of any faith for that matters, dude has a persona and a gentleness and meekness about his approach that is should be desirable for every Christian. He wrote a book called Humble, and it's it's, uh, it's not being facetious. Uh, now, if I wrote a book called Humble, you would think it was satire, but his isn't. Like He's honestly trying to have this approach to these conversations that are just full of grace and graciousness, though he disagrees. So what is at stake in these conversations? Well, there's a reason that I, I wanted to start off with how do we view and understand the Pope, uh, the papacy? Because no matter what other subject I was to discuss, whether it's baptism or Mary or any of the other issues that I might see uh, in Roman Catholicism that I might disagree with, it would always come back to, well, the church has said. Because as far as I best understand, Catholicism holds like church tradition or the office of the Pope, on equal par with Scripture. So they have kind of this dual authority. Uh, I would almost argue that they put the Pope above it because if they have a disagreement about Scripture, they go to the Pope. Now, I don't see that structure in Scripture. Maybe we'll get to that here in a little bit. I see the opposite, that if people have a disagreement, they would actually be encouraged to go to Scripture. So the, the argument is, what is our ultimate authority? Is my ultimate authority going to be man, or is it going to be God's word? That doesn't mean that I discount the authority of, uh, like the wisdom of early church fathers, or that my church has no authority over me. I am an elder, and I'm a part of an elder group. And if the other elders came together and said I was disqualified and wanted to remove me, they could they could do that, right? So I am under authority, and I respect and appreciate the authority of the offices of God instituted in his word. 
but I don't see a clear argument for Peter being the first Pope and there being the succession of Popes after him. So let's get into what's at stake. What's at stake in conversations like this? Uh, Pope Boniface, anytime you study Popes, you're going to learn your Roman numerals. Uh, the 13th, uh, no, that's eighth. <laughs> I, know, I promise I know my Roman numerals. I've seen Rocky 1, 2, and 3, and 4. Those are all Roman numerals. After that, I don't know what they are. He says, furthermore, we declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. So the Catholic church is laying out very similar. Like you'll find if you know Mormonism well, the correlations between Catholicism and Mormonism are very tight. Uh, their kind of structure, the kind of we are the one true church and there's no salvation outside of this uh, incorporation, right? Like, because it's not just a denomination to them. It's like an institution. And outside of this institution, there is no salvation. Uh, but they have very similar structure that if I don't believe in Joseph Smith as being a prophet from God, then I don't receive exaltation. I don't reach salvation in Mormonism. And in the same way, if I just reject the Pope, then I, I would lose or never have been saved in the first place. As a Protestant, to my Catholic friends, this strikes us as very odd. Like the idea that there could be, like there could be somebody who's a Christian. They believe in Jesus Christ, died for their sins, that he was God in flesh, raised on the third day. But he could hypothetically, I don't know anybody who thinks this way, but hypothetically think Moses was just uh, an, an illustrative tool and not a real person. And I would never say, well, unless you believe in Moses, then you're not really saved. I say you could be in serious error, but that doesn't mean you lose your salvation. You just, you got something wrong. And I, I, we all have something wrong. We, we will see perfectly when we're uh, reunited with Christ. But right now there's aspects of my theology, whether I, like, I don't know them, but I'm sure there are aspects of my theology that are wrong. And someday I'll be corrected by God himself on that. I'll be able to see clearly. So this idea that I have to believe the Pope in order to reach salvation, to me, that puts another person next to Jesus Christ. Uh, but it just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. So it's not just a matter of preference. In fact, one of the things that I think is interesting is this shows the broadness of the Protestant church in a healthy way, that we can disagree on leaf issues. Like there's churches down the street. We're all a part of the same body. Right, we got the Church of God, the Church of Christ. They might disagree on baptism. They might disagree on end times. Uh, we got charismatic churches. Right, they might disagree on the spiritual gifts, but we believe in the core. And so, Catholic, which just means universal, I think our church is much larger, much more influential, doing much more to spread the gospel in foreign countries than the Catholic Church is at all. And it feels like the Catholic Church is this narrow little thing where, yes, you have to believe in Jesus, but you have to have this view of Mary, this view of baptism, all these different views. And if you vary on any of them or dare question them, then your soul is in eternal danger. So let me go on to kind of what I think. Uh, the Vatican I, they, they said that the view that Peter was the first pope and there has been this traceable succession has always been the view of all church fathers. But there's a problem. This 
this is factually wrong. I, I don't know how else to say it, but it's it's totally wrong. Uh, the verse that they use to argue that Peter is the first pope and after him is this lineage of popes comes from Matthew 16. So I'm gonna I'm gonna turn there, and maybe we could look at it together. So for Catholics, of course, this will be uh, very familiar. For Protestants, uh, I've always read this a certain way. I never read this. Uh, even I don't think if I was, you know, just grew up with only had a Bible and I didn't know denominational differences. If I read this, I, I don't think anybody, if you put 100 people in a room who had never read the Bible, knew nothing about Protestant beliefs or Catholic beliefs, and you just had them read the book of Matthew, I don't think any of them would come to the conclusion from just reading this that, oh yeah, after Peter, there's going to be this lineage of other church leaders and they, they have to actually meet these certain criteria. So three things I think need to be proven by the Roman Catholic church because they are the one that are claiming this kind of authority over me. And so I think they need to show good reason why they have that authority, why they rightly were given that authority. Uh, and there is, there's three things. They need to be, prove their supremacy, their infallibility, and their succession. Now, like I said, I, I got a lot of this from Gavin Ortland, and one of the things I'm trying to do is condense like 10 hours worth of study into a much shorter video for those of you that are new to this topic to make it a little bit more palatable. Because um, I had to just take pages and pages of notes, and then I spent all morning trying to condense this down for you. So that's that's kind of what I hope this channel does. It takes big weighty topics and we try to condense it down because I'm an everyday guy, and I, but I think everyday people can understand this stuff. So Matthew 16, and uh, this is where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Now, a couple of things that we want to listen for. Do we hear about anything about succession? Is this what Jesus is saying, showing that Peter is supreme of all apostles, so that he actually has a higher office than they do? Um, and that he will be infallible. Since this is the strongest verse for the papacy, I would expect at least one of those to be in here. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Most people would agree that this is a somewhat confusing verse, that they're not exactly sure what the rock is. What you might be surprised if you're Catholic, the early church fathers had a wide range of views on what this meant. Some thought the rock meant the gospel, right? That what he professes, and this has been my view, this is what to me the plain reading is, is Peter confesses that who Jesus is. And he's like, I tell you, you are Peter, like you are the rock. And on this rock, not meaning Peter, and he doesn't say not on you, but 
like on this thing that you just said, I'm going to build my church. And for me, it's the confession of who Jesus Christ is, the gospel. Like the church is built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church isn't built upon Peter. It's built upon the gospel. Some argue that it's about Jesus Christ, that he's referring to himself. Um, he's like, hey, you are Jesus. And he's like, that's right. And upon who I am is what I will build the church. Uh, that kind of mixes in with the gospel part. Like I could say, okay, that's true. And then the third view is that he is saying, Peter, on you, I am going to build my church. Now, there's a couple of other things that follow. One, he says, uh, whatever you loose and whatever you bound uh, on earth shall be loosened and bound in heaven. If you're not familiar with this terminology, this is something that rabbis would say. And it was basically their way of saying something was authoritative. It usually their interpretation or their declaration of what God had said. So if you were... Um, what's interesting is if you read the literal translation, uh, it puts it in this way that whatever is bound already in heaven, you will bind on earth. Like if it is, if God has declared something to be moral or immoral, you are just merely going to repeat that here on earth. It's not so much them creating and making new moral statements. It's if it is permissible in heaven, they are going to make it permissible on earth. And if it is impermissible in heaven, if it is a sin, then they are going to make it a sin. So I, I think that's a better understanding. Sometimes this loosening binding language can be confusing for us. Um, but he's saying that to Peter. So maybe he's giving Peter authority to make certain things good or bad. And this is what the Pope would continue to do throughout history to say, hey, I am loosening or binding these doctrinal ideas. Whenever there is confusion, you can come to me. And what is our view on the saints? What is our view on uh, Mary? I am going to bind or loosen these so that you will know how to worship. But the problem is, is if you just go to chapter 18, it's literally the other page. Jesus tells the other apostles, he says, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, he says the loosening and binding isn't just for Peter. It's for the other disciples as well. And there is a theme that you will notice as you read. He always talks about two or three. Do you know, as the early church, as they spread out, they sent out elders. What does Jesus say? They went out two by two. There's nothing in here about the supreme office of Peter and that he is the one who can loosen and bind and nobody else. In fact, we see the responsibility given to Peter is just given to the other apostles as well. Now, that doesn't say that we don't believe that Peter held a special role among the apostles. Sometimes it's said that he is first among equals, but he's still equals. Uh, I'm an, an elder-led church, and I think Catholics might miss this perspective, but I'm the voice because that's my spiritual gift. And if you read scripture, you see Peter is always the, like the first one to talk. And most of the time he's saying something stupid. <laughs> the transfiguration, everybody else is standing in awe and silence and like reverence of what they just seen. And Peter, this makes me think that he's a Baptist because he starts a building project. He's like, 
it would be good for us to build some homes for you guys. I, I, I recognize myself in this. It's the guy who doesn't know how not to talk. And so just because if there's silence and Peter speaks up, that doesn't mean that he has all this unique authority. I think that gets read into the text. It just means he might be the talker of the group, of my group of elders. I'm the talker. And so I'm usually the mouthpiece for what we have all agreed upon. And I don't know if we'll get to it today, but uh, even in Acts 15, we see Peter's not the mouthpiece all the time. In fact, they have a discussion and disagreements and Acts 15, they're trying to figure out doctrinal issues. And you don't see Peter take the lead. You see James, uh, who's over the church in Jerusalem. He takes the lead on this, and he's like, here is the consensus. Here is what we should believe. And he appeals back to Amos 9. He goes to Scripture for it. So I, I just don't see Peter, though he is uh, kind of a leader, He's still equal with the other apostles. There's no other office over the apostles that he has. Now, uh, it needs to be said because one thing that I've learned through all of this discussion, all of this research thus far, is Catholics love the early church fathers. Reformers tend to love them too, but we think the early church is Martin Luther, right? That, like That's where we, and John Calvin, we, those are our early church fathers. And we might have neglected a little bit. Now, Ignatius of Antioch has always been my early church father because I just thought it was fascinating that we had the disciple of John. We had his writings. I was like, man, that puts me really close to Jesus, though it's not canonical. It's not a part of scripture. I just, I think that's really cool that we have that much history. And people say, oh, Ignatius, he's obviously Roman Catholic. Well, Ignatius had a high view of the office of a bishop or bishops. Um, but he wrote seven letters into every church he writes. He names the bishop, except for the bishop of Rome. He doesn't mention the name of the bishop of Rome when he writes to it. He doesn't even bring it up. And so if the bishop of Rome was to be the ultimate high palpal authority, it seems strange that he would write to all these other bishops of other churches. But when it came to the bishop of Rome, it's like, eh, there's no special privilege or honor given to him by Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, but the early church fathers, they were in total disagreement on what this verse in Matthew 16 meant, on who or what the rock was. The majority of them, the vast majority, said that uh, the rock was not Peter, but was in fact the gospel. Some said it was Jesus, and some said it was Peter. Augustine much later on, as he's older, writes correcting things that he had said or written about when he was younger. And one of the things that he changes his mind on after better understanding and wisdom of a, a mature, older believer, he changes his mind on Matthew 16 and says it's not about Peter. It's about the declaration of who Jesus Christ is. That's who he thinks. Uh, that's what he thinks the rock is. Uh, I do see a habit of Catholics quote mining from the early church fathers for it to say what they want it to say, but ignoring all the things that go contrary to it. And there's so many things that go contrary to it, right? There's just this vast majority. So Catholics will have this confidence that they have read and 
heard that the church fathers were all Catholic. But what they tend to have heard is the selective verses, or not verses, but selective readings from the church fathers that support it while dismissing or never even being exposed to the things that disagree. Um, so the, even the early church, Catholic church, disagreed on Matthew 16, uh, really until the 1870s. So Rome's rule for explaining the scriptures and determining doctrine is the creed of Pius uh, IV. And it says, this creed binds Rome to explain the scriptures only according to unanimous consent of the fathers. In the year 1870, when the fathers gathered and the Pope declared his infallibility, so that's where the infallibility of the Pope comes from, the cardinals were not in agreement on Matthew 16 or 18. They had five different interpretations. 17 insisted Peter is a rock. 16 held that Christ is the rock. Eight were emphatic that the whole apostolic college is the rock. 44 said Peter's faith is the rock. The remainder looked up the whole body of believers as the rock. And yet Rome taught and still teaches that Peter is the rock. So they say, hey, among the early church fathers, there has been a unanimous consent. That is what the Vatican I says. It says from the very beginning, this is what has always been held. But that's just, like, guys, I just, it just doesn't seem to be true. Even within the Catholic Church, as they're trying to work through all of this, the majority don't think Peter is. But those who are in the seat of the Bishop of Rome are the ones who decide that it is the Bishop of Rome that has supremacy. Do, do you see kind of the problem with that and where at least the temptation to go awry might come from? That somebody that says that I am in the seat uh, of this um, am also the one who's in charge of everything else because I'm in this seat? That's an abuse of power. And if you don't think that the, the seat of the Pope has been abused by power, just read the history of some of these guys. Some of these guys are absolutely awful. Um, so uh, let's move on. I can spend too much time on there, and I don't want this to be two hours long. I really try to keep these things as tight as I can, which might be why I talk fast. Uh, what about when Jesus tells Peter to feed my sheep, right? Uh, do you remember that where he repeats it three times? Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, feed my sheep. Uh, where is it? That's John 21, 17. Let me turn there. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So one of the arguments that is made by the Catholic Church is that this is Jesus declaring that Peter, you are the main shepherd of the Christian church. And three times I'm telling you, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Now, as a Protestant, the way we understand this, this comes after Peter's three denials of who Jesus is. So 
Peter had denied Jesus three times. And now Jesus is doing this beautiful restoration of Peter. He says, I know you rejected me three times, but now I'm going to give you three chances to tell the truth. Three times I'm going to ask you, do you love me? And Peter responds, yes. And then he tells him, here's, here's your mission then. Feed my sheep. Tend to my flock. But is Peter the only apostle who is to feed sheep? Isn't all the apostles their job to feed their sheep? To, to feed and shepherd the believers? So I don't think that is a unique assignment given just to Peter. Uh, I would be hard-pressed to make an argument from this that he is the sole leader of the church and God's representative on earth, and that this office that he has is unique above all. I think that has to be injected into it. Um, there's verses that I think that go against the papacy. Luke 22, on the night of Jesus's betrayal, they're arguing about who is going to be the greatest. Now, this is, Luke is written chronologically, and this is rather late in Luke. And why would they be arguing about who is the greatest disciple? If it had long been proclaimed that everybody knew Peter held a special office and he was the de facto leader, why would they not just be arguing, well, who's second after Peter? They don't have that argument, do they? Instead, they're trying to figure out which one of us is first place. If Jesus had definitively and authoritatively declared that Peter was first place, then why would any of them even bother with this discussion? It's things like this that make me go, mm, I don't know. First uh, Peter 5, he speaks as a fellow elder. Uh, there's a couple of other things that I think really put the uh, argument in favor of Protestantism and rejecting Catholicism. A couple of facts is they say that they can trace it all the way back to Peter, but Rome most likely had a plurality of elders until 1400 AD. Uh, not 1400, 140 AD, right? So there was a plurality of elders uh, or bishops in Rome. And then there was an elder system in Rome for at least the first 200 years. That's the best that I could find. There are people who write and say this is who the second, third, and fourth uh, pope was. And the Catholic Church has an official view. But historians tend to say, look, it's not as clear as they would like it to seem. It's actually rather murky. Nobody knows really when or who the next person to follow uh, Peter was. And we don't even know when Peter was in Rome. Like it's never said in here that he was in Rome. It mentions that he was in Babylon, uh, which was a nickname from Rome, but it could mean several other things. So we, we don't even place uh, Peter in Rome uh, in all of Scripture. And then these verses used to make this argument for Peter, I can make them for Paul as well. These are the ones, this for me is some of the strongest arguments against it, because if I can make the same argument with almost a higher degree of clarity for Paul than you can for Peter, then I think that argument, just the, the, the argumentation style is rather weak. So 2 Corinthians 11, yeah, so 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 28 Paul is saying, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So Paul says that he feels the pressure and anxiety for all the churches. You could make an argument that he felt that pressure because he was in charge of all the churches. 
You see, you see how that could work? Uh, and you can do the same thing in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not to seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Okay, it keeps going, but we can stop right there because he is making a definitive declaration about theology. Now you can argue this is something that has all been decided previously, but he is saying this is my rule in all the churches. That sounds like a papal statement, right? That sounds like somebody who has this high office that is above others. Now, I don't think Paul has that status. He is uh, the, the last born among the apostles, but he has equal authority and share along with all of them. And it seems to me that they all share this equal authority without one having supremacy over them all. So the criteria that we were looking for is we were looking for Peter's supremacy, uh, his infallibility, and his succession. Now, I can't really make arguments about his infallibility and succession because it's, the Bible is just silent on it. The, the Bible's silent. And for those of you who believe in the Pope, the arguments from Scripture are so sparse and in many ways, very, very ambiguous, so much so that even the Catholics themselves were in disagreement on, on what these things said or meant. That it would be, I'd be hard-pressed to make a theological declaration, yet alone one, that made your salvation depend upon believing that. Do you see, do you see the difficulty in that? Um, it would be as though the Constitution was written, but it just left out the office of the president. That's what scripture does when it comes to the Pope. You have all this documentation, but I, I have nothing here about this office. Some would say, well, if you go to the Old Testament, there's the high priest and it's like Peter is the high priest. But the problem is, is if I read the Old Testament, I can't go 10 minutes without reading about the high priest. I'm told all about his office. I'm told all about who he is and what he should do and what his boundaries are and everything, right? We're told a lot about him, but you get to the New Testament. There's nothing about this office of Supreme Bishop, overseer of all churches, um, who's infallible and his succession is to uh, be for all time. Yeah, uh, disciples die and then somebody succeeds them, right? It, I'll be at this church for a long time. When I leave, somebody will succeed me at this church. But that, just because somebody follows after Peter, somebody followed after all the bishops, that doesn't mean that that office is unique among all the offices. But here's what we do get. And there's a reason. I did not grow up in an elder-led church. It was my study of scripture that made me want to go elder-led. Elder-led movement is fairly big within Baptist churches these days. What has often been is you have a pastor who operates as like a CEO in many ways. And under him are deacons who have a very business uh, oriented role and background, and they help make decisions, but the pastor is kind of the head of everything. In fact, we see the difficulty in this because oftentimes it's hard to fire a pastor who has put himself in that position. I call it the one ring to rule them all <laughs> methodology of leadership, and it's not healthy, and it's not what we see in Scripture. If you just read anywhere where church um, leadership structures are given, it is always 
every time a plurality of elders, at least two. Um, I, I don't know how else to, to say that better, but the plurality of elders is the norm. And with all the talk of, like if you read First um, Timothy or Titus or any of those places, that's what you're going to see. And with all this talk, like the Bible is not silent on church leadership and church structure. It speaks quite clearly about it here. For this office, you have to be the husband of, husband of one wife. You have to be above reproach. Uh, you can't be a drunkard. It lists all the qualifications for this. And then it goes to deacons and it lists all the qualifications for deacons, which I've never quite understood the role of deacons in Catholicism because they don't seem to operate in the way the New Testaments do. The New Testament, they're table waiters, right? Um, they just they just serve. They, they take care of the widows and the orphans. Um, that's kind of what our deacons here do. It, it's not a leadership role. It's a servanthood role. Of course, all leadership roles are servanthood roles, but um, the church should understand that in, in a more thorough way. Uh, so Mark chapter six, we're almost done. And it says he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, do you notice there's a theme here? He sends them out two by two and he gives them authority. This would be a great chance for Jesus to say, Peter, you're over all of this. But he's just not, he's just not. So we get a, this very clean and repeated church leadership structure in the New Testament. But it is absent, in, in, in my view. So this is where I talk really strongly and some people get offended. For the best that I can see, every argument made for the papacy is a huge stretch. It has to be read into the text, that you start with where you believe it and then you look for it in the text, or it is misquoted from the church fathers. Now, I, I'm not going to, like, if you want me to, maybe we could spend an hour looking at, here's what the Catholics say the church father said, and then here's what they actually said. I might be the only person that enjoys that video. <laughs> so, anyways, I'm going to keep going. I'll, I'll keep studying. Uh, I, I got your comments from the last video. I've tried to listen to, uh, I was listening to a Catholic apologist, and everybody was like, oh, he's not a real Catholic. Uh, I, I, that seems to happen a lot where like, Oh, what about this? Oh, he's, he's doesn't really. So I've been trying to listen to the guys that you guys like, uh, or that seem to have unanimous consent among most Catholics that these are our best guys. I've, I've tried to listen to their arguments. I, I, I'm just not convinced. I, I'm just not. Um, and this, I think was probably your strongest card to play that there needs to be a Pope who has authority. Uh, the succession is not about maintaining authority over the church. It's a succession. Succession. The succession, there we go, uh, is about upholding truth. I've talked too long. I can't talk anymore. All right. I hope you enjoyed this little dive into Roman Catholicism. Some of you, this might be the first time you've heard information like this. If you want more, Hit like and subscribe. Let's grow this channel. Talk to you later.